All right, welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we want to welcome back a special guest. We have Ryan Stelzer. He's a management consultant, executive coach, entrepreneur, and author who co-founded Strategy of Mind, alongside Dr. David Brendel, to build high-performing human teams. Ryan served at the White House as a presidential management fellow during the Obama administration, where his team was responsible for improving and sustaining high levels of performance across federal agencies. His new book, co-authored with Dr. David Brendel, is called Think, Talk, Create, Building Workplaces Fit for Humans. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely, man. And so to start off, one of my favorite stories of the book, right? I think probably the best story in the book. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously it's my opinion, but I, I think it's true. Uh, so really about the Islanders, man. So that was probably one of the most, yeah. So, you know, you kind of find a lot of times in these books, and this is not necessarily a knock on philosophy because I get it and it works, right? Uh, they kind of talk about abstract ideas. They tell you how to apply certain ideas. They tell you uh, maybe like one example, maybe even a couple of examples, right? But they don't really go in depth in terms of story, you know, kind of narration and storytelling. So what, uh, what I really appreciated about this book is the fact that there are so many stories, but in particular, this is a story I didn't even really know about before. So can you tell us about the Islanders? Yeah, well, first of all, I wanted to just say that when you said you had a favorite story, I was hoping it was one of my stories, but that's actually one of David's stories. So he gets oh, interesting. For, for telling he's a he is a devoted Islanders fan, as are his uh, his sons and um, Isaac in particular, his, his uh, eldest son is just, um, you know, his, his room is blue and orange and uh, wears Islanders clothing only. And he's they they're they are the, the, the truest Islanders fans that exist. So shout out to those guys um, for uh, for their fandom and David coming up with this story and, and putting it in the book. And so, yeah, the long story short is it's a great example of how connecting with the emotions of your fan base can help you potentially succeed as a franchise. Um, the really, really quick version of the story is that the Islanders have this passionate, passionate, small, but passionate fan base on, on Long Island. And there's the Coliseum, which is sort of this um, religious center for the for those uh, sports fans who love going to the Islanders games. And the, the organization made a decision to move closer to the, the city, the big city, for, for money and uh, for financial purposes. And the Islanders actually started to struggle in their performance as a team. So they were struggling to win games and they were, and there was this sort of magical um, ability for the old Coliseum, that the old barn is what, as it was referred to by fans, for them to play well when they're in this state, in this unique arena out in the middle of Long Island. So when they would play games in this sort of hybrid season, both in the city and out on, out on the middle of Long Island, um, their performance actually was notably improved when they were playing on their, on this sort of home ice and um, at the, at the old barn. And it was because of the, 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 just sort of the, the the rabid fan base that was there supporting them. And they felt sort of the emotional investment in playing better. And, you know, we can get into the psychology of it all, but um, yeah, the long story short is the, um, there was a decision then that was made by the league about whether or not, because the Coliseum just really wasn't up to standards for a modern NHL arena. So um, long story short, a compromise was made where the, instead of playing all of their games, you know, basically outside of Manhattan, um, they would build a new arena closer to the sort of the heart of the fans on Long Island. And it was a great, 
um, uh, behavioral economics story is a great psychology story. It's a great sort of a, a connection with emotions and business and bottom line. And um, it's a it's just a remarkable tale in professional sports where you can actually measure the performance of your team by wins. And they were performing noticeably better when they were in, in front of their their just passionate diehard fans in the center of Long Island as opposed to closer to Manhattan where those folks couldn't necessarily make the journey. Right. Yeah. And can we talk about the rigidity of the ownership? Like how initially, obviously the thinking was, yeah, well, you know, who cares? We'll find new fans elsewhere. Like what's the big deal? It's Brooklyn, right? We're not going to find fans in Brooklyn. Like get out of here. So, right. Can you tell us about that and how essentially he went from like this pretty much this rigid position where the idea was, we know we can have both, right? We could have rabid fans. And we can essentially make a ton of money doing so, right? But then, you know, obviously as things kind of went on and he started thinking about it and you see, you know, sort of, uh, well, um, you tell me the story, right? I don't want to get into it too much. So, uh, yeah. So can you tell us about how the Think Talk Create process applied here? Yeah, it was it was great because what what uh, it's it was it was the lived experience of Think Talk Create. I mean, they had to come up with this. They had to they had to innovate a solution to the problems they were facing, and that's what Think Talk Create is is great for. Is it really is a problem solving methodology, and they use active inquiry and you ask open ended questions um, where you you don't you don't come at it with a preconceived notion. So you stop, you pause, you think, you reflect. That's the thing. The think step talk you engage in dialogue through active inquiry asking open-ended questions and saying well you know what are the things we can do differently here open-ended questions are questions that start with um what or how as opposed to um closed-ended questions which are just th that elicit a yes or no response so you want to try to ask open-ended questions because it, it, it encourages your conversation partner to expand upon what they're saying and then so you ask, ask some, uh, some good open-ended questions, and then you sort of innovate the solution. You create something new, and you build, uh, you build an, a, a, a new um, model that, that you probably didn't even have you know, in the back of your mind before. As a and this, this process allows you to, to come to this sort of innovative product, these, these innovative steps. So um, yeah, the, the owner, and the, the, it was more than the owner, but the ownership team, leadership, um, government officials as well were involved in this. They really practiced active inquiry with fans to say like, okay, so what are the things that we can be doing differently? How can we change our model here? And yeah, the, the thinking was that we'll just move to Brooklyn and we'll, we'll magically develop fans. But that's, of course, not how emotions and behavior work. You can't just show up somewhere and all of a sudden you're going to have this rabid fan base that's been devoted to you for the last 30, 40 years. Um, they, so they, they started to engage in active inquiry with fans. There's a story of, um, um, leadership riding the subway and mm -hmm. talking with fans and asking them questions while they're on the subway. Like, so what did you think of this? Or what do you think we might do here? Or how can this be better here? Um, good active, you know, good active inquiry questions. So, um, yeah, it's, it was a, it was a, it was a good application of think talk create where they use the model to come up with a solution that was a win-win for both the organization financially and for the fans who were so just passionately devoted to them. Yeah, it's interesting too, because um, by asking these open-ended questions, essentially you're, you're getting the person that you're discussing with to engage more with you in conversation, right? So it becomes sort of a, a like a rapport building exercise right. too. Um, do, do you feel like um, these open-ended questions essentially help you to feel like, I don't know, um, like you're contributing in a sense to mm, the ideas that you're discussing. Maybe that's too general, but in, in the sense that let, let's say I'm at a, a workplace meeting, right? And all of a sudden I start um, engaging in the process of active inquiry, right? And um, 
I bring up an idea at work. Let's say, you know what? I, I think maybe at work we should allow for more, um, let's say, workplace flexibility uh, due to the COVID nineteen pandemic. It's been a tough year. A lot of um, our employees have gotten used to working at home. Do you think that maybe it would be a good idea? If, you know, uh, even though uh, uh, tensions uh, with the pandemic are decreasing, that maybe we should still allow for more workplace flexibility and allow employees to still work from home if that's what they're most comfortable doing. And then it's not like a yes or no sort of question. So then it starts, it starts a conversation, right? Um, so um, do you feel like engaging in that kind of conversation um, allows for more of a um, uh, rapport, rapport building, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the benefit of Think Talk Create is that it really builds, as you said, rapport, it builds trust amongst the dialogue participants. So we're striving to build psychologically safe workplace environments. That's the goal here, because that's, that's the key indicator of performance. Real quick, psychological safety is verified by Project Aristotle and Google, a number of behavioral psychologists, but the, the, the core idea of psychological safety is that it's an environment where you feel free to share ideas without judgment or reprisal. So if I'm in a meeting and I have an idea, I can raise my hand and I will not be made fun of. And I'm confident that I will not be mocked or made fun of, ridiculed or punished or reprimanded, any, any, any of the above, any negative action. There will be no negative consequence to my sharing an idea. And as you can imagine, psychological safety is the indicator of performance because teams that have that sort of that space where employees can share ideas and team members can engage with one another are most likely to create new solutions in an innovative way because they're, they're it's, it's like eight heads are better than one. I mean, they're just, you're all working together at all times. And Google found this to be the only indicator of high-performing teams. It was the only thing that high-performing teams had consistently was, high, was psychological safety. So that's the backstory there, but think, talk, create, build psychological safety because by asking open-ended questions, you're building trust and rapport with your colleagues. So it's a respectful way of saying, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Let's talk about it a little bit more is, is more or less what you're, you know, you're sort of saying under the surface here. It's like, it's like you're acknowledging that the idea that they have, and then you're expanding upon that idea. And then also if you're, if you're the one posing the question, if you're coming up with the idea and you want to pose the question yourself, um, it's a great way of inviting others to join in on your idea with you. So instead of saying, I have an idea, I think we should um, wear, wear Tampa Bay Buccaneers shirts when we do our podcast. <laughs> I, I know that there, that was probably a discussion that you guys had. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> you, you can say, well, um, I'm not sure, you know, you, that, that might be, a, that's a statement. Whereas if you say, what if we were to wear Tampa Bay Buccaneer shirts? You know, it's just phrasing it as a question. It invites the person you're sitting across from to say, no, that's a terrible idea. We should wear, <laughs> but um, so it, it's it, it's a space where you can share ideas freely and think to create allows you to build that rapport and trust because you're you're inviting others to conversation with you. And that right there is gonna, it, it, it cultivates really great results. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is, um like a good way to give feedback when, when you're um, listening to ideas from, from someone? So there are a number of models for feedback. Like there's, uh, there's a sort of recipes or formulas that you can think in your head, but they're all basically getting to the same thing. I think one of the first and foremost, one of the most important things is that you acknowledge what they're saying as sort of, and not immediately criticize or jump to a conclusion about it. So, um, you could 
at a phrase like that's interesting why wow, I never really thought of it that way. Um, there's all these different little um, catchphrases that you can use to just acknowledge the person and what they what they brought to the table. And then just as soon as you acknowledge them, then you can jump right into another open ended question. So that's really interesting. I had never really thought of it that way. I wonder what, you know, what about trying it X or what about um, what if we did this or how would it look like if we blank, um, you know, right there, you're, you're, you're just keeping that conversation going. Now it, you inevitably are going to reach a point where there's probably you've maxed out on your active inquiry and you, you've done enough open-ended questions because you could do this. It, it would be a tautology. You'd just be doing this in, in circles, mm -hmm. but, um, and you'll know when that is though, when you reach a conclusion and you, you sort of come to it, um, organically and you say, geez, I wonder, you know, have we, have we really, have we come up with a solution here? That could be a good a final question there. And then you agree. And, um, and that's when the create step happens and you, innovate, you know, you build the, you build the new, um, build the new solution, new product, whatever it might be. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a process that can, that continually repeats itself as well, which is great. You know, it's not like you do think talk create once and you're done doing it. It's okay. Let's do think talk create in this meeting. And then we're going to keep it going next meeting. And then we're, it's a, it's a process that continually builds on itself. Yeah. And then so from your workshops, um, obviously, there was a you and David do together. What have you guys learned about some of the barriers, right? Why is it that so what you're saying seems natural, it seems like like, that's kind of just the way humans are supposed to behave, right? But obviously, you know, when we're thinking about corporations, you don't see that much, and you don't see that too often. So what are some of the barriers? And why did they occur? There's a number of barriers. Um, well, the funny thing is I got a comment from one of the best comments that I got from a friend of mine who read the book, she messaged me and she said, um, I love your book because it's so obvious. And mm -hmm. she said, I thought that was a really great piece of feedback. Mm -hmm. She said, cause it's counterintuitive, but it's obvious. And we know you've, we've all been in work environments before. We can probably think of some that are not as positive as we'd like them to be. And chances are they did not, they did not, um, lead a think tank create culture they did not have that sort of um, environment when you were working there and the barriers are it's a combination of factors but one of them can often just be ego where you have employees who are looking to better themselves and not necessarily their teammates or the organization so i want to look good here so i'm going to offer my idea and put other ideas down mm -hmm. um, another barrier is what we talk about extensively in the book is a rigidity and focus on numbers. So that's a combination of numbers only and short-termism. So it's, I need to have immediate results now. I need to have, what are the quarterly numbers? What are the weekly metrics? What are, you know, whatever the bottom line, what, what, is, what are the numbers that we need to focus on? And so that rigidity and focus on numbers only can be a, a detriment to an active inquiry experience or think to create culture. So you are so focused on the result that you forget about how, what's the best way to get to that result. Um, you know, get it done is not a management style. So when you have a manager in there who's just sort of barking orders and, and wants this and that, and, and, you know, we need to have the solution immediately, um, you might forget about the best way to get to that solution. And mm -hmm. so some of the barriers are, yeah, this rigidity and focus on quantitative only thinking, and also a, um, just a desire to um, maybe make yourself look as though you're the smartest person in the room, or um, it's it's you, you, we forget the humanity and the skills that we have and that are that are innate within us because we're just so focused on getting results and we forget that oh maybe there's this other process out there that would be better. 
Yeah. And how do they think about it? Because, you know, I mean, look, I get it. Maybe this is just, you know, our way of thinking because of it. I think the three of us are kind of philosophically minded. So, but just, I mean, can you just guide me through this, right? Why would somebody, and again, maybe this is a stupid question. So why would somebody sacrifice not just long-term benefits, right? But create these significant long-term risks for the sake of short-term profits. (laughs) Oh, that's a very long answer to that question. But I can tell you, let me go, let me answer that question with an example. Mm -hmm. And we'll use the role of a CEO. So about 50, 60 years ago, the role of the CEO was salaried. So Mm -hmm. an employee who was the leader of the organization was salaried and had earned money just as every other uh, employee did in the organization, a bit more money than every other employee, but they they earned a stable salary. So in the 70s, 80s, there's a change in thought that says, well, that can lead to rogue CEOs. That can lead to CEOs who are not aligned with the ownership of the company. Mm -hmm. So if I'm an owner and I have a CEO who's salaried, they might not agree with me on decisions that are best for the company. Mm -hmm. So how can I incentivize that CEO to make decisions that are in my best interest as the owner? And what changed is the ways and the way in which CEOs were paid. And what happened was instead of being salaried, they were connected in this and they were aligned with the interests of ownership. So they were paid through stock or they were paid through equity in the company. They were paid through, um, they were paid by how well the company performed. And now also remember CEOs generally by and large do not last very long in their position typically like five years is the ceo tenure now there are there are there are outliers there are no question but by and large ceos are not in their roles very long <clears throat> so you have ceos who are aligned with ownership and need to maximize who want to make as much money as they can when they're when they're working and so they are incentivized to focus on short-term results as opposed to long-term health and sustainability and, and growth of the company Mm-hmm. So their motivation is to squeeze out every dime that they can in the time that they're working there. And my sense is that does actually trickle down a little bit and that you see this mindset in the CEO and then, okay, well, then the senior management team is probably going to have that mindset and the middle management team is going to have that mindset and it just sort of you know affects the organization that way. But that's just one example is that you had a change in how CEOs were paid and that change in CEO pay structure was basically necessitated short-term thinking because all they all they cared about was making as much money as they could while they were employed. While they were employed, and that meant I'm gonna I'm gonna maximize as much as I can this quarter because I might not be here next year. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So it's not so much of a compartmentalization. The idea essentially is, well, you know, if I'm not here, obviously in the future, who cares, right? It's not, cares. it's, yeah, it's not like, you know, there's no, uh, I guess, like unconscious psychological process where the person is in some sort of denial. It's like, no, I know that this is going to end up badly and I'm out of here. So let's try to get as much as I possibly can. I'll give a, an example of a situation mm-hmm. I was in. So I, I used to work in a call center and essentially based on the demand or how many people were calling in that day. Um, so let's say I had an hour lunch usually uh, on any given day. But if it was, let's say, a Monday and it's a particular busy day, they would cut that to maybe 30 minutes, right? Which sounds reasonable, right? You, you want to um, be available for the clients that are calling in. Um, but eventually, as I continued to work there, 
for some reason, they started cutting, not for some reason, sorry, uh, in order to meet the demands of uh, these clients who are calling in, they would cut the lunches on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and end up being the whole week. Wow. And when, for example, I was accustomed to that one hour lunch before and then had that sort of switch, it affected how I felt working there in terms of just feeling like I had enough of a, of a break to sort of cool down in, in between working. So eventually, uh, they, they maintained that procedure for like several months. And then it just kind of uh, weighed on me. And I, I was hoping they would, you know, uh, prioritize the, the mental health, let's say, of the employees over the productivity, because then maybe that would, you know, yeah, there's that short term game of a gain of you, you're able to accommodate all these clients. But long term, the employee is not um, satisfied. And then maybe what's the long game there? Maybe maybe I do, I'm not as productive. Maybe I care less about the company because I feel they care less about me. Um, now, they probably I, I always assume, though, I try to give the benefit of the doubt. Right. There's there's reasons why certain things are done at companies. Not everyone is cold in their thinking, but um, it is important to take into account how employees feel so uh, the number you know being metrics based is isn't yeah. always the best way to go about things right. right and then so ryan what would you say then if somebody were to say well you know this is why capitalism sucks right this is why it doesn't work and why we should do away with it altogether so th this was a point that david and i discussed at length and mm -hmm. it was that we are capitalists we believe in the capitalist system and we are in the capitalist model so we are not in any way advocating for any line of um socialist thinking in this book we are mm -hmm. trying to help companies grow and perform better we just want employees and customers to stay alive as well as a result of company growth like i mean it's not an unreasonable request mm -hmm. we don't think um but yeah, this is not an anti-capitalist book in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're saying here's how capitalism can perform even better. We want right. the companies that we're talking about in this book to be more successful. Um, one of the most uh, heartbreaking, uh, not to bring it on a down, downer note, but um, one of the more, more heartbreaking um, uh, experiences I had when working on the book was I was talking to uh, Samia Stumo's mother, and we were talking. She was a, a victim of the Boeing of, of the of the Ethiopian Airlines crash, and the, when the Boeing plane went down in the Max Eight, and um, just, uh, just brilliant um, uh, young woman who was traveling to work uh, overseas, and she was doing um, healthcare work in in underserved communities in Africa, and and she was on the plane, went down, of course, and when uh, uh, tragic loss of life, and the the. The bizarre story with Samia is that, not to give any secrets away from the book, but she is the niece of Ralph Nader, who mm. crusaded in for safer automobiles and sort of, and his claim to fame was that he took on the automotive industry, which was chasing profits at the expense of passenger safety. Mm -hmm. So here his niece dies in a plane crash, Boeing, which was the fault of the, of the airline, of the, uh, of not of the airline, of the, of the air, of the airline manufacturer of Boeing. Um, for chasing profits at the expense of safety. And I'm on the phone with her mother and she said, I want Boeing to be successful, which I, I did not expect her to say on, on during the call. And that was, a, that was a, a, a sort of a shocking moment because here's this woman who lost her daughter um, in the hands of this company who was, who was you know, contracted to keep her safe right. and they failed in that contract. And she's saying, look, I, ultimately I still want them to be a successful business. 
Um, she just doesn't want other people to go through what she went through. And so I think uh, uh, I cannot even begin to fathom and imagine what she had to endure and what she experienced. And I, I, I would, I, I hope no one has to endure what she had to endure. Um, but we want companies to be successful and then we're trying to provide a solution for businesses to grow and be profitable. Um, you mentioned working in a call center was a story we didn't include in the book. Actually, one of the challenges with this book was that we had so many stories and that we couldn't include them all. But there's a story uh, from a colleague of ours when he was working in a consulting capacity with a, one of the large um, financial service companies. And they had a call center that had 100% turnover annually. So 100% of the employees in the call center turned over every year. So you can imagine how expensive that was for recruitment, for training, for, I mean, it just, it was not a good, uh, forget it, talk about bottom line. It was not good for the bottom line of the company to have 100% turnover in the call center. So uh, management realized that they had a problem and they went to the employees and they asked an open-ended question. They could, so what are some things that we might be able to do differently? How can we, how can we make this experience better for you? Um, they had a conversation and then uh, they, they said, we'll bring on a team of uh, consultants to help sort of uh, improve the process that, by, which, by which you work, through which you work. <laughs> and um, in the year that they asked the question, just what can we do differently or how can we make your life better? They had a 25% improvement in retention just by asking the question, not by doing anything yet, just from asking the question and saying, we hear you, we see that something's wrong, we acknowledge that there's a pain point here, we're gonna to try to solve it. 25% improve, improve, improvement in retention just from asking that question. And then um, when they went in and brought the consultants in, you know, they, they had a turnaround as far as turnover, but it was just acknowledging the employee's pain point was enough to make the company um, more profitable. So. Mm -hmm we can throughout the book and we advocate for this is that we are trying to help companies be more successful. And that's the, that's the sort of the perverse incentive with CEO pay, just going back to that example is mm -hmm. you brought up a great point. So they leave after five years, then what? Well, they don't care because they're not an employee of the company anymore, but if you're the owner, you still care. And so the idea here is that, well, I'm just going to hire another CEO who cares as much as I do. I'm going to align the incentives and they're going to earn as much money as, as they, you know, as they, as they can by maximizing profit in the short term. And I just, we're going to go through this short cycle after short cycle, but you're burning the candle at both ends. Eventually the company is going to crumble because it's not a sustainable model, but and this really impacts. So if you're the single owner of a company and you, or maybe a family ownership and you hire a CEO, Okay, you know, you might uh, you might be concerned about that, but chances are, I mean, you guys own stock in companies. Do you know when they go under? If you if your stock if one stock tanks, then okay, you go buy another. So when it's stock ownership and you have these massive corporations that are owned by lots and lots of people, not just one person, it's who are they answering to? Yeah, ownership is the stockholders, but it's it's these you know okay, you go to a shareholder meeting, but thousands of people are in the room. Right. And so it's uh, you're a it's it it's a it's a sneaky system because the CEOs can sort of escape without any repercussions and they certainly get the golden parachutes when they if they if they behave badly. So it's it's it just it's a foolish model because the companies are not set up to be successful in the long term. They're set up to be successful in the short term and then eventually you're going to run on a runway. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, okay. So if we're going to apply this model, right. And we're going to say, okay, uh, you know, we want to get out of the quantitative mindset solely. Right. Uh, I guess, what will we do? What's, what are some of the steps to kind of make that happen? And how do we make it actionable? 
So it's, you know, it's important to probably mention here that we're not advocating for the, the abdication of quantitative thinking entirely. Mm-hmm. Numbers matter and they make right. a difference and we want data and we want good science and we want good numbers and math and, you know, to support our, our decisions. We're just saying that it, the numbers have, it's gone, the pendulum has gone askew as of late and it's, it's kind of swung in the quantitative direction a little too hard. And now we need to want to, we want to sort of bring it back to the center and get the, the balance between the quantitative and the qualitative realms. And so if you're in an organization that's so focused on the numbers, chances are it's because it's of some sort of short-term mindset. So a good place to start might be thinking longer term and saying instead of, well, how can we be successful this week? Let's think about how can we be successful this week next year? Or how mm-hmm. can we be successful this week in a few? And so you can start framing your questions with a longer um, uh, time frame around those questions. So instead of saying, well, what, what can we do to have a good launch this summer? Um, well, what can we do to have a good product launch that leads to better results um, next quarter? Or what can we do? So you start framing your questions in a wider scope. And then all of a sudden your thinking might stretch a little bit from short, you know, really, really narrow and really, really tight and short term to a bit longer and um, broader scope of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to consider the possibilities of what's possible as far as ripple effects in terms of, all right, if, if we do prioritize how our employees feel at work, or we do encourage them to collaborate and have these uh, open-ended conversation, or uh, sorry, ask open-ended questions and think, talk, and create, essentially. I wonder, yeah, uh, what kind of ideas uh, would come from them, from those kinds of employees? Instead of somebody who feels rigid, stuck, feels like they're just doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, every single day, stuck in the automaticity of things. Right. Imagine uh, what could happen, yeah, after a year, and you know five that, years, 10 years at a company. And yeah. You know what that even made me think of? And I mean, obviously, I know uh, we're not socialists, but I mean, Marx's alienation. I mean, that's what we're talking about. People feel alienated from themselves. They feel alienated. Well, from themselves, I mean, their um, their kind of motives and goals, because it feels like the company's kind of bestowing the goals on them. So they're alienated from themselves. They're alienated from their coworkers because they pretty much feel like there's no actual collaboration. You're just pretty much told from the top down what to do. And there's even an alienation from the product or from the service, because you're essentially given either some script that you work off off of. Um, and I have clients, by the way, who do that and who struggle with that. I have a client who's a, um, he's a recruiter. And literally he's like, all I do is I read a script all day. And he's like, it really fucking sucks. And it's hard to do because it's the same thing. And I have like particular answers that I'm supposed to give and then particular questions that I'm supposed to ask. So if somebody says this, this is my response. Um, if somebody says that, this is the question that I would ask them. So again, you have like this threefold form of alienation where people come to work and essentially it's like office space where you come in and you're like, it's nine o'clock and you're like, yeah, I got to go have coffee for like the next two hours. Cause I can't be here anymore. Absolutely. No, it's the, the we, um, we had office space in the back of our minds a lot when we were writing mm-hmm. the yeah. book because there's, a, and, and also the office as well, for the British and the American, I mean, there's workplace comedies are funny because they point out the reality of, of, of our professional existence at times. And so yep. the, um, I suppose that's like the Camus quote, uh, life is absurd, but it only becomes um, tragic when it becomes con when we're, we're aware of it, when we're, it becomes conscious to us. And right. so um yeah, maybe it's a bit cathartic to watch these sort of workplace comedies because it's like it, you just poke fun at the absurdity of what you do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we when we were working in a in a property management company and doing a, a workshop for them, and we 
we're doing uh, uh, active inquiry and practicing think talk great with them and um, we posed a question to the room and what happened was is they were it was their sort of their their um, annual retreat if you will and they had all of their employees sectioned off in different tables so the lawyers were at a table accountants were at a table um, um, management team was at one table and because they were a property management company, they had maintenance technicians. So their custodial staff was there as well. And they were seated at another table. And we were talking about ways in which the company can be more successful and, and how they can grow. And we asked the question, you know, what are some of your pain points? And a custodian raised his hand and said loss. And so we got to talking with him and at practice active inquiry in front of the, in front of the crowd <clears throat> and come to find out these custodians who were working in these buildings every day with a lot of elderly residents develop these close emotional connections with the residents because the residents who were living alone uh, would ask them to come in and do odd jobs. Like, hey, can you open the pickle jar for me? Can you come in and change the light bulb? Can you fix the batteries in my remote? You know, that kind of thing. So right. they develop this, 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 um, this friendship with these folks. And then inevitably the elderly residents would pass away and these custodians would be experiencing grief. And so they, they talked about the loss they were, they, they, they felt and, and, and it really opened up the, the discussion, the flood, the floodgates in the room, because people started talking about other sort of emotional elements of their work. And it, re, it, it helped the company realize that in their customer service, this is what made them so unique and so special is that their custodians willing to go into, you know, residence apartments and open a pickle jar. Um, that, that really was meaningful for them as an organization. It was a great marketing tool for them as an organization as well. So it was a win-win for the company because they hired grief counselors for the, for the custodians. And they also sort of re, you know, reframed how they sold themselves to potential customers and folks who were looking to move into their buildings. Like this is, we provide this comprehensive experience for you. We're not this sort of management company that just like, you know, gives you the, throws you the keys and turns off your hot water. This is the kind of experience you're going to have here. So that was all the result of Think Talk Create, and that process was helping them uncover that. And that's one of the important things here is that in, that, that was from a custodian who led, who, who brought that to the in front of the CEO. I mean, that was the a custodian came up with that idea, and you uh, you'd be amazed at the talent, and the ideas, and the, that that are within your office and within your within your um, your colleagues. And so. How can we put our, like, again, eight heads are better than one. So how can we get all of these minds together thinking and coming up with ideas? And yeah, a lot of them are not going to be good ideas. That's okay. I mean, it's, that's the whole part of the creative process is that not everything is a home run. You might get one a year. That's, a, that's an amazing idea, but it's still going, you, you have to go through the process to get there. And so, um, yeah, if you, if, if you have a team, then you'll be surprised at some of the things that they can come up with. And so monetarily, if we accept the fact that CEOs are pretty much there for the short term, how do we then incentivize them? So how, pretty much how do we incentivize them how to think long term and how to obviously think talk create? Well, you could look, I don't I'm not an expert on CEO pay and I'm not an expert on how they should be restructured. But I hear you. For, for example, you might align their pay longer term. So instead of just extracting short term value, you could say, well, you're going to be paid over X period of time. Mm -hmm. So if the company does well over 20 years, you might get that money, not over two years. Um, but so there's there are a number of ways in which you might do that. You could, of course, restructure the way CEOs are compensated entirely as it was restructured um, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Right. But, um, you know, that's. Leave that to the MBA professors to to to, to uh, set up a new CEO compensation structure, but it clearly is out of whack a bit right now. I, there was a, a a section in the book when we were I was making the fourth round of edits or fifth round of edits um, 
and the percentage increase in CEO pay, I thought was a typo. And I said, oh, no, 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 it can't be that high. I must have added a zero there by accident. <laughs> and I actually, I circled it for the editor. And then I went back and said, I need to double check this because I'm probably typing it late. And I just, I missed the, you know, added a couple zeros and it was wrong. Right. And um, no, it was right. And it was just this astonishing moment where I thought CEO pay went up nearly a thousand percent compared to the average worker pay that went up like 12. I mean, it's just like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, it was just, you, there, things are out of whack and we would, it would be great to reorient the ship a little bit. Yeah. Right. And anyway, your, your clients and the companies they work for, uh, by applying this methodology, they are seeing, uh, returns from, from applying this methodology, obviously. Right. So, I mean, even if the CEO incentive structure remains the same, if they're getting some kind of benefit uh, from it, then it's still a win-win situation. Right. Could be, could be, could be. Cause I think the structure is important. So, but I mean, Ryan, go ahead. What do you, what do you think? Sorry. Yeah, no, we, we have a, uh, we were working with a company this summer and they, it was after the book was published and they were a financial services firm and they, grew at a astonishing rate during the pandemic, which was not a typical story you heard in financial services. So they grew, they doubled their team or something and, and over the course of the year, which is just in financial services during the pandemic, that was not, and they were a small company too. So that was, that it was just not typically what the story that we heard. And uh, we got together with them and we led a, a, a seminar for them with sort of their first back to the office event. And we, 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 the team members were there for the first time. Many of them who were hired over the pandemic were meeting their colleagues for the first time because they'd all been on Zoom or emails in the, in the previous 12 months. And so we sat around the tables, we got there and the CEO, the, 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 the director, managing director for this particular office <clears throat> got up and with all of the new employees there said, okay, so what are some of the things that we can do, be doing to be successful this year? What are some of the, he, he, just, he just dove into Think Talk Create an Active Inquiry and he was posing questions. He was asking brand new employees, what are your ideas about how we can be more successful this year? So whether you work there for the four years, whether you work there for four minutes, um, your opinion was valued and respected. So this, I mean, I don't know how the CEOs paid at that company. I'm not sure how the managing directors paid at that company. I have no idea, I have no insight into that. Um, I'm sure very well, but the, the approach that they took was, okay, you're a new employee. I don't care. What are your ideas? How can, how can we be better this year? What are some things that we can deepen, do to deepen our relationship with our customers? What are some products that we might come up with? What are some new uh, financial service tools that we could build or what are, you know, it was all active inquiry. That's all it was. And they practiced this during the pandemic. And then after the pandemic, and it showed, I was sitting there thinking, well, this is why you grew because this is your, this was your approach to everything. It's like, I'm going to get everyone together, ask them, what can we, what can we do to be better? And we're going to grow as a result of that. No question. And they did. What I love so much about your kind of thinking, and just obviously in terms of, um, in terms of just the process itself and the way you think about people's, um, 
experience. You know what? Actually, you know what? Hold on. I actually want to read a quote. I actually want to read a quote. So just give me one sec because I want to actually get into this. And I think it's really important, obviously, to the conversation about just workers and the power they have. Okay. So this is going into William James. And I'm going to just read a little bit of a, a passage from this. So Ryan and David wrote, this was an idea presented. Okay. So let me actually go back. So it is an underlying, it is our underlying cognitions about who we are that largely determine how we act in that world. This was an idea presented in large part by William James, who wrote in an 1870 diary entry, my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. Urban legend tells of a story in which James was asked to deliver a lengthy speech in front of a crowd of academics and researchers eager to hear his thoughts on the history of psychology. Settled in an extensive settled in for an extensive report, the crowd was shocked by James's choice to speak for just a few seconds. Quote, unquote, they asked me to talk about the last hundred years of psychological research, he said to have told them, quote, unquote, it can be summed up in the statement, people by and large become what they think of themselves. Thank you and good night. Love that story, right? And it talks about, and when we kind of think about, right, the power that people have, that's what it talks about. So the ideas that James have has when we're talking about and thinking about cognitive behavioral therapy, just psychotherapy in general, think talk create, right? When we're thinking about just the power of kind of uh, collective bargaining, but also just collective work together. I love that you focus so much on the power of the individual employee. So to me, that's astonishing because oftentimes, and I know I felt this in multiple companies, the thought is like, who am I? Who am I to say anything? Who am I to speak out? Uh, who's going to listen to me, right? I'm just this person who's, uh, let's say, you know, from my perspective, it would have been like, I'm just like a clinician, right? I have like a psychiatrist working above me. Uh, let's say I may even have nurse practitioners, a director, an assistance director. I have, you know, managers, owners, whatever. And so from that perspective, it's really hard or it's really easy actually to see yourself as like the little guy. And you're like, who, you know, I'm just, you know, what do, what do I have to really contribute here? So what I love, and I really want to focus on this is the fact that you're taking William James and you're saying to yourself, well, and to the readers, obviously, we're saying to the readers that no, 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 you're actually way more powerful than you think you are. And if you continue to think of yourself as this little person on like the bottom of the totem pole, then yeah, no change is ever going to happen. But it's so much bigger than that. And you have so much more potential than you think. Yeah, so I love that section of the book. And that's one of my favorite sections of the book. And I want to give credit to uh, that, that story about William James came from Dr. Bob Rotella, who's a sports psychologist. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give him credit for that story. Um, but so we often have this mindset when we're working in companies, particularly large organizations, that we are this tiny little canoe in front of the Titanic coming at us. And that really there's nothing we can do in our canoe to, to redirect that ship. I mean, we're just, we're going to get, it's, it's way beyond our control and outside of our control. We were talking to a colleague, uh, a colleague of ours and uh, a friend of ours. And when she was working for a different organization and she was saying, the company's this, the company's that, the company's this, the company's that, and they're so toxic and the company's this. And she was a senior executive at this company. And she was saying, you know, the company was this, company's this, company's that. And at one point we stopped her and we said, you are the company. Like she was a senior executive at the company. She was talking about how toxic the culture was and how leadership was terrible and how, I mean, and so she's going on and on about the shortcomings of the company. And she had a, a she was in the C-suite. And at one point we just stopped her and we said, you, you are the company though. Like you, you said, you're, you're one of the key features of the figures of this company. So mm -hmm. um, we often forget the role that we can play. And look, we, we acknowledge in this, this in the book, we understand that the, the assembly line employee working at a, at a processing center in AMP for Amazon might not have as much influence on Jeff Bezos as somebody in the, in the C-suite does. And I, we, we absolutely acknowledge that. But there's, 
there's a scale here for our, our, our ability to influence the company. But you everyone has agency. And that was the key, that was a key factor of our book is we wanted to make sure that this wasn't viewed as a, okay, well, the CEO has to change and our company will change because we get that a lot. It's like, oh, the company is this, the company is that, our leadership is bad. And we try to reframe that as, okay, we hear you. What are some things that you're doing though that we can, that to, to better this environment? What are some things that you can do to create a more positive um, experience for your colleagues? You know, and so everyone has agency and yes, it, it comes in varying degrees depending upon your role, but it was really important to us when we wrote this book that it, it's not a CEO only book. A lot of business books and leadership books are designed to be read by people who sit in the corner office. And we wanted to write a book that should be read by people sitting in cubicles. That was the idea of the book. The motivation was to write it and to sort of flip who it's written for. And so this book is to show that you actually can enact positive change with the story of the custodian. I mean, they're just having the ability to say that they experienced loss that completely um, reshaped the way that that company retreat went. And that was, that was from somebody who was on the bottom of the pay scale. And so the, it's really important that we, that we conveyed to the reader that you have agency in creating positive change, but that agency comes when you believe in the fact that you can create positive change. And that's why we mentioned William James, because he says that, yeah, my first act in, in um, having free will is believing that I have free will. It's like, I got to, I got to believe myself capable of creating positive change in order to create positive change. So that we often think of our workplace as this giant ship coming at us and we're sitting in the canoe, but you've got to believe that you can change the course of that ship. You've got somewhere deep down within, you've got to believe that. And if you don't believe that you can create change, you won't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it becomes a snowball effect where let's say if you have a person who's thinking about unionizing and let's say, you know, they believe that it can happen. They're not really that sure, but they say to themselves, okay, it's worth the risk, right? There's some, let's say moderate level of probability or possibility that this can work out. And then that person might talk to another person. And then that person thinks, yeah, you know what, maybe, maybe we can't make this happen. Maybe we can't have a union here. And then that person talks to another person. And then, you know, you kind of have like this sort of snowball effect where you had just one person initially believing that maybe it could possibly happen and saying it was worth the risk, even if it doesn't, obviously. But then you had another person saying, well, I actually believe in this because you believe in this. And then come to think of it, you know what? Yeah, this does sound like a possibility. And then the third person believes in it. And then fourth and fifth, and hopefully, I mean, obviously, Obviously, if there's no union busting and, you know, shenanigans going on behind the scenes, the idea is that you can actually form a union. And now you don't really necessarily have to worry about whether or not, uh, like, let's say psychological safety is going to be a component or a staple of the company because it is right. It's a part of it's a part of being in a union where you not only have representation, but you pretty much have a you have an equal voice in the representation, too. So it's not, you know, just some person uh, kind of like high up or whatever, you know, sitting on some throne and, you know, kind of dictating what, you know, what the I guess what the negotiations of the union and obviously the company would be it's more so like no you guys have meetings and everybody's heard equally and everybody has a vote right and just to add to that so uh, and unions are, are amazing but it, even just the kind of team that you can create from having a group of empowered individuals right. the the emergent property that that can arise from that yeah. it's it's incredibly powerful and and going back actually to um that executive that you were mentioning earlier as, a, as an example uh, which said, oh, my company is this, my company is that. It reminds me of this um, book. I forget who it's by. Uh, I believe it's called Tribal Leadership. And they were talking about the different um, types of uh, tribes. Like one is, for example, uh, I'm the only one contributing in my group. Everyone else in my group sucks. And there's another level 
where my group is amazing, every other group sucks. Then there's another level where um, my my group is amazing, and then every other group is amazing too. But you know, we're concentrating on what we're doing and something like that. And then these these mindsets are are incredibly important because, um, like you said, Ryan, it, it could be very um, disempowering to not believe that you have agency and you have an ability to sort of impact um, the goings on of your workplace and what's possible. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one one of the 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 not the conflicting, but one of the the most meaningful uh, messages that we can say with the book is that, for example, we talk about workplace issues and employer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we believe that Amazon can be bigger. For example, we believe that Amazon can be even more successful than it already is. Mm -hmm. And so, if they maybe shifted their mindset with some of the employee issues that they're having. It might actually lead to even bigger growth and better growth for them as opposed to less growth. And so these companies who are often on, on the front page and who find themselves you know, with, with negative headlines written about them can actually maybe even be better and bigger than they already are by adopting this mindset and, and treating workers a bit differently. Um, the other One of the funny things, though, that you notice if for example, watching TV and you see commercials, human sells, being human sells. So as a company, if I market myself as a human-friendly company or an environmental company or, you know, call it greenwashing with environmentalism, but if I market myself as a people-first business, I'm going to, that, that's, that's an attractive marketing tool. That's people, people buy into that. And so you'll be watching, um, there was actually, there's a company that we wrote about in the book. It's a big company that we did not disclose who, their name for um, confidentiality purposes because of their employee who told us the story that didn't want to be identified. So mm -hmm. we changed the name of the company in the book. And they were profoundly, profoundly dehumanizing. I mean, the company was just, you, I, I could tell you, well, we told you stories in the book and some of the things they did to employees, um, like firing somebody on their, 24th year, 364th day so that they couldn't receive the full retirement benefits that they were entitled to at 25 years, like things like right. that. Mm -hmm. And I was watching TV recently and there was a commercial for this company um, talking about how they were people oriented and people centric and humans come first and yada, yada, yada. And I'm sitting there knowing sort of the backstory thinking this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it's one of, the, so if humanity sells, in your marketing ads, why not practice what you preach? Like if, if, if humanity sells and people want that, then why aren't you living that? And the, one of the interesting data points that we, we came across when we were doing this was <clears throat> something like 70 or 80% of employees want to work for a company that creates positive value in the world and makes an impact and makes a difference. And of those employees that want to work for companies that make a difference, only 20% or 30% believe that their company is telling the truth in, in how it positions itself as far as making that difference. Mm -hmm. So in other words, roughly one of every five, only one of every five employees actually believes what the company's saying as far as its humanistic efforts. And 80% of your team members are rolling their eyes saying, you're not actually human you're not actually you know you're poisoning the well here and i know you are um so what can you know it's it's 
it's a there's a there's a disconnect between employees who want to create a difference and then working for an organization that they actually don't believe does make a difference so if humanity sells why not just be humane why if if you're marketing yourself as being a humanistic organization then be that humanistic organization yeah yeah yeah, and I mean, look, I'm going to ask you something that's a bit more kind of anecdotal because I'm just curious about your experience. I mean, obviously, I'm sure it's really hard to even get stats on this, but I am really curious about it. So look, from my perspective, I'm pretty cynical about just major corporations in general. And I think for the most part, they're probably mostly shit, right? That's just, that's kind of what I've seen, right? That's the anecdotal evidence that I have, right? So from your perspective, do you find that for the most part, corporations, you know, kind of are full of shit? Or do you find that it's actually kind of a, mostly a misperception, right? That we, it's let's say popularized by the news, maybe even sensationalized where it's more about like the recency bias, right? It's, you know, the stuff that we see on the news and then we kind of generalize and we think, oh, okay, you know, Amazon did this one terrible thing, therefore they must globally be terrible, right? So what's your experience been on just major corporations? Uh, the way I'll answer that is by saying, I think we need to do a better job of managing our expectations. So mm -hmm. take for example, the recent headlines around Facebook mm -hmm. and you have an employee who says Facebook is motivated by profit and they made decisions that were in their own financial best interest and not in the interest of necessarily all individuals who use their platform. No kidding. <laughs> like that was my response to that was yes. Thank you. We know that that's a corporation almost by definition, like we understand that they're motivated by profit. And it's, it's a, it's a horrible um, reality. And I understand that we want to create change and we want companies to be more responsible to their, to their customers and to their employees. Absolutely. But the revelation that companies are motivated by profit and motivated by their own best interests is not, doesn't come as a surprise to me when I see it in the news. And so <clears throat> that's just one example um and while it, it, it i i do genuinely believe that most it's it's difficult to say companies because ultimately companies are made up of people mm -hmm. and so a cor corporations don't exist without the people that work for them so if we you know if the it, when when that when the people left aig when they carried their briefcases and their boxes from their desk out of the office and the, the company no longer existed because there was no one working there so if we all magically got up and went to Mars, the companies that are here on Earth would no longer exist because they're, they're, they're made up of people. So to say that companies are motivated by profit or motivated, it's, it's really, we're talking about the individuals that work for these organizations. Right. So it's one thing to say, oh, the company made a decision. The company did this. The Facebook made, no, no, they didn't. A person made that decision. Facebook didn't make any decisions. Facebook is a, is a name. It's a logo. It's a brand. It's a, it's a brand. So you had the leadership team members who made decisions. So what we're talking about here is individuals and not corporations. So my answer, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big question, but my answer would be one, we need to manage our expectations and two, stop referring to them as these entities unto themselves because they are not, they are individuals who are making decisions on behalf of, of, of a picture that you see, which is their logo. So it's a, it's the people that we can try to, um, encouraged to change, but companies by and large are not, companies are not entities unto themselves. They are, they're collectives of individuals. Right. And so if we're kind of expanding that and saying, well, you know, as a person who's taking on your service or who's buying your product, I have power too, right? Like Alan has power, right? You know, we buy things. I've 
bought something from Dunkin' Donuts this morning. So, okay, does that mean that ethically speaking, and I mean, I have an answer to this. I'm obviously just curious about yours. Um, what is it okay for a person to, let's say, boycott a company, right? Is it okay for a group of people to boycott a company because of unethical practices? So I know plenty of people who don't even use Facebook anymore, even before the whistleblower, like for years, they're like, oh my God, I actually know somebody who was, and this is, I guess, sort of funny because uh, this person, I'm not, I don't want to reveal too much about them because I don't, maybe this could hurt their career, but this person was actually offered a job at Facebook and they said, I'm not taking it. Like, I do not care. And it was actually a pretty, it was a pretty lucrative offer too. And they said, I'm not doing it. This is just like, it's super unethical, right? So from your perspective, do you feel like we, we, first of all, I mean, we do have the ability, but I guess, do you feel as though it's ethical for a group in a community to band together and say, yeah, you know, we're, we're just not going to participate in this if this isn't like up to our standard? Yeah, we're free to make our own decisions. I mean, ultimately, just like a company's free to make their, like, we're talking about mask mandates and saying how oh, a company's mandating vaccination um, or mandating mask mandates. Well, it's a private organization. If, if they want to mandate, yeah, sure. But I mean, they, they're free to make their own decisions. And just like, as a consumer, too, you have the freedom to make your own decisions. I want to shop here. I don't want to shop here. Do what do what you will. It, <laughs> it's different when you talk about employees, though. So um, I, I get this question occasionally from philosophical circles in particular is they they basically say well isn't it unethical to use philosophy to help businesses be more successful and it's a it's a bit of a gotcha question but the way in which i respond to that is by saying i would rather be able to apply my ideas and create a positive impact within the organization than sitting outside the organization with with little ability to to enforce change or create change so if i work if i'm an employee excuse me, if I have the ability to be an employee at an organization, mm -hmm. well, I will probably have a greater likelihood of success in, in, a, in positively affecting that organization than if I stay outside and sort of write blog posts about it. So if I want, um, we'll move away from Facebook, if I want Amazon to change and I get offered an executive position at Amazon, I might be more inclined to take that position because I can create change from within. I can, I, I become the company, just like that. Exactly. We're talking about the executive, like all the companies, that's companies that, well, now I'm the company. And so I would rather be able to enact positive change as an employee than not, or in you know, my role as a consultant. So I would, I, yes, I could be in academia. I could be writing papers that are read by two people. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely true but I'd rather have my ideas read more widely. And I would like to create a positive impact in the world, in the real world, not necessarily the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. And so the, the way in which I go about doing that is doing podcasts like this and writing a book and, you know, and um, writing articles and, and working with organizations. So it's as consumers, yeah, we're free to make our own choices. We can do, do as we wish. Um, but as individuals and uh, working for organizations, if, if presented with the opportunity, I mean, maybe it would be a good idea to go work at Facebook because then you can sort of, you, you can be a positive force affecting the culture. You're not joining the empire. You're, <laughs> you maybe you're, you're adjusting the empire. Mm. Uh, uh, actually, something I wanted to uh, add. So um, for these big companies, right, for these major corporations, you think that because there are so many different moving parts, so many different individual interests that it's sort of um, harder to enact change? Or is that just a misconception, just something, you know, because I haven't given it much thought. That's just sort of a surface level. Yeah, you're saying that just, like it's too big picture, right? Or it could be. For, for instance, let's say, uh, okay, so we'll also move away from 
Facebook, uh, just because it was used as an exam, uh, example before. Uh, Pile on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, like you said, uh, Ryan, there's a group of individuals um, that are coming to decisions, right? It's not necessarily the entity of Facebook. We have to sort of zoom out and, and try to be nuanced about this and, and look at who's making these decisions. So do you feel like maybe there are some people that do want to enact some kind of positive change, but because it's such a huge corporation, it's it's not as easy as one would think. Right. So uh, it's, I have friends that work there and I, I it's actually, I have found it to be a, an environment where actually ideas are welcome and shared and they, they are encouraged. Um, and so, but yeah, like to your point, moving away from Facebook and just saying, generally speaking at organizations, mm -hmm. it can be overwhelming to enact change. Yes. So it's, I think you, as an employee, you ultimately have to realize you're salaried. And the reason why you're salaried is because you're doing a job. And the reason why you're doing that job is probably to help the company be, be profitable in some way, shape or form. So it goes back to sort of managing interest as well. It's like, okay, so understanding my, my role here is to do X or Y, but what are some things that I can do that maybe align with the company's best interest, but also align with my own values and the, the broader values of the organization and then maybe the community in which we serve. So, okay, I work for a cereal manufacturer that uses a, a chemical product in the cereal that really isn't great for people to eat. Well, um, all right, I understand that my job here working for the cereal manufacturer is that we need to make food for people to, to ingest and that we need to make a profit doing so. But maybe I can think about ways to change the ingredients so that we're not poisoning our customers. Um, you know, it's just, that's a really simplistic example, but sure. you can, if, if you align your, just think about aligning interests. Okay, so what is the motivation of the company? What's my motivation? What do I want? How do I want to bring the, bridge the gap here and bring these two together? And what can I do to, to see my values align with the company's interests. All right, right. I got to ask you a tough question, man. So, Go ahead. I, all right. So now imagine, you know, you're, you're working for a company that's not Facebook and, you know, you're trying to implement changes. It's not working out. Are you then ethically responsible and obligated to quit? You are not ethically responsible to quit because you might need to put food on the table and you're probably more ethically res responsible for eating than you are to um, where you work. So I would say that you, if there are folks who work at organizations and work in environments that are just horrific workplace environments, but they do it because they need to pay rent, they have kids, they need, you know, pick your reasoning. But um, ultimately, we make sacrifices, perhaps for loved ones, for, for, um, for our own safety and stability. And so you, there is no ethical obligation to quit your job. I think you the the there there's a superior ethical obligation to put food on the table for your son or daughter like that probably I think that trumps where you work. So, what one of the the more meaningful sections though I think of the book we talk about Professor Bertrand Marion Bertrand who gave this speech at U Chicago during a convocation speech and she said that you you have the ability to vote with your feet though so if you you please enact change try to enact positive change try to create a difference in the world. And if you work for an organization that lies, cheats, steals, and doesn't behave in an ethical way, then please vote with your feet and leave and do something else. Now, of course, we all don't have the ability to vote with our feet. There are some, there's just the reality that some folks, if you work on, on Amazon's production line, maybe it's the job that you need to have and you're, you're, you're so grateful for the job and um, that's, you know, that's where you work and that's pretty, it's a stable paycheck and that, that's okay. And if you, if you're unhappy there, 
maybe there's other ways in which you can sort of manage your experience. Um, if you, if you're, if quitting is just not an option, working with a therapist, working with, uh, you know, mental health partners, um, talking to colleagues, maybe working with managers, whatever that might look like. But no, the, the short answer to the question is you are not ethically, ethically obligated to quit. Um, there, are, there are larger obligations that you might have that, were, that, would, innate, that would necessitate you staying in that role. Right. But if you are part of an organization that lies, cheats, steals, as Dr. Bertrand said, and you have the ability to quit and you have the freedom and flexibility to do so, well, then it's probably a matter of reflection and thinking about whether or not this is an organization you want to continue working for. It's not a statement about you that you work there, but it is a, uh, a certainly a conversation to be had. And, and you, if you have the ability to vote with your feet and you realize your company's doing something wrong and you, and you can't change it from within, like, and you, and you can't um, positively shift the, uh, shift the course, then, then sure, absolutely, you have the ability to leave. Right. So I think what you're saying is that in terms of nuance, we're going up the totem pole. So the people at the bottom, we would be understanding and we would say, let's say somebody who works at a warehouse. Like, yeah, if you can't quit, I mean, obviously this is probably the only game in town. I mean, for a lot of towns, Amazon is probably the most the high or the biggest employer, whereas opposed to, let's say somebody being upper management and, you know, if they have like, you know, an MBA and God knows how many items on their resume and the idea is like you can walk away. Yeah, you should, you know, as a community, we need you to do that. But going back to your point from earlier, right? You'd, you'd rather enact change. No, from but I'm saying if you can't. I'm saying if you can't. Oh, if you. Can. Yeah, if you can't, if you legitimately, if that. So if if it doesn't align with your values and you've tried as hard as you could, and now the idea is, you know, you're kind of staying put when you don't necessarily need to be. I think that person is responsible for that. So. Yeah, and I, I by and large, I are there companies out there that lie, cheat, steal, poison the well? Absolutely. Yeah. By and large, it's not a majority of them. I mean, I, I really have not found, look, I, I work with companies and there are a couple of organizations that we probably wouldn't work for given what the, the I'm not, I don't want to share them, but there, there's, we've talked to a couple in the past where um, I just wouldn't feel comfortable working for them given sort of what they, their, their line of work. Um, but by and large, companies are not lying, cheating, stealing, and they are, they might engage in questionable behavior at times, but the, the sort of idea of this, of the Scrooge McDuck Corporation, um, it's, it's a bit of a stereotype and it's not always accurate. I mean, the, the vast majority of businesses are small businesses or family businesses. And so like my friend who owned the bakery, like was she lying, cheating and stealing by opening a bakery? Like it, the, the vast majority of companies out there are not the, 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 the ones you hear about in the news by, by a long shot. And so, um, all in all, I think the companies are trying to do right by, by in, in their own special way, they're trying to do right by their employees and by their customers, because ultimately that helps them be more successful. And think talk create is just a way to, to further that success. Yeah. And so this might be surprising to you, but actually think talk create was not the most important idea for me in the book. So for me, actually, the most important one was a little bit, I guess it was sort of hidden, but I mean, not really because you touched on it a few times, but I love this idea. So it kind of blew me away, but it was honestly kind of another one of those things that sort of like seemed obvious, but I was like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. We should. So the idea of the stakeholder, right? So all of us think about stakeholders as just literally people who own stocks in the company or, you know, obviously uh, stocks or shares or whatever. So the idea there is that we think of stakeholders holders as like this person has x percent of ownership of the companies the way you framed it is that you actually brought in the concept of stakeholders so it's not just people who own the company right it's more it's the so actually can you explain that for us i'd rather you tell us 
Yeah. So going back. So if I'm the person who goes to the store, buys the cereal that has the chemical in it and I eat it and I die, I have a stake yeah. in the company because that company just killed me. Right. So stakeholders are all of anyone who has a vested interest in the organization. So yeah. that is financial investors. So shareholders, absolutely. No question. Employees, because they get their livelihood from this organization. Customers, because they're the ones who are using the products and services. The community, because they're housing. So if you're poisoning the well, in the community and people are drinking the water, that's a problem as well. So stakeholders are basically anybody who has an interest in the company's well-being um, and, and, and behavior. So uh, if we sort of broaden that scope and we think about, well, I'm a stakeholder in a lot of companies now, if I really think about what organizations affect me. Um, and so it's a, we, it changes our commitment and I guess, level of responsibility and interest in organizations and it moves it away from oh i'm invested in this company financially therefore i care but if i'm not invested in the company i don't care okay but if you're using their product and the product poisoning you you should probably should still should care so it, it's a stakeholder idea is that yeah yeah it's if you're anybody that has a toe in the company pool then you should care yeah, like technically, I am a stakeholder in Dunkin' Donuts because if they give, yeah, if they give me shit coffee, I mean, it's gonna hurt me, right? Whether physically, emotionally, or both. Sure. Mostly emotionally, probably. Just, Mostly yeah. emotionally, I'd be like, "What the hell? I just wasted like three bucks on this garbage." Exactly. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up, Alan, any final questions for Ryan, man? Yeah. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? So. Uh, Good place to start is our website, strategyofmind.com. That's where you can find our professional services. But um, I, I've uh, been active on social media, so you can find me on Instagram uh, at Ryan J. Stelzer. I'm also, believe it or not, I know that this is going to be sacrilegious. I'm on TikTok as well. <laughs> sacrilegious for the folks who are like, why is that guy on TikTok? Um, <laughs> you can look for me on TikTok, Ryan, at Ryan Stelzer, and uh, follow some videos. We do some funny, funny uh, bits for marketing. I'm on Twitter as well. Um, and lastly, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I, I write a, the Think Talk Create newsletter for, for LinkedIn. So if you're interested in keeping up with the ideas, just subscribe. It's free. I, I publish an article every couple of weeks and um, it's a fun way to stay engaged. Absolutely. And then, so I think honestly, man, your TikTok is one of the best TikToks that I, I mean, look, look, I'm not that active on TikTok, just, you know, to be clear, but it's one of the, out of all of the people that I, we do follow, cause we have a page there together. Can you share the, the one that you were talking about before we started recording? Yeah. 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 So there's the, yeah, the great one with you, with you and like the club and the dance club. And so where you, where you end up giving the guy the audio book version of TikTok create, right. To play for the club. That was really great, man. And so like the fact that you guys could come up with these dope ideas, that's really cool because because usually when people think of these kind of works, you know, they think philosophy, they think stuffiness and, you know, some dude in an armchair. But the thing is with you guys, you know, you're pretty much bringing this into the practical world, whether through comedy and obviously whether through, you know, like workshops and just collaborations, where the idea is that you kind of see that these ideas not only have merit, again, in the real world in terms of like collaboration, but they can also be funny too. And I got to say, I actually own both the physical copy of the book and the audiobook. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I go between both of them. Sometimes if I'm just laying down, I just want to relax. I'll listen to the audiobook. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm just sitting somewhere here, I'll start to, to read. So. Yeah. And then, by the way, Ryan, man, this was probably, I would say, uh, top five, top three, one of the best books I read this year, man. I really appreciate oh. it. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Means a lot. Thank, you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely, you, man. man. Talk Take to care. you soon. Take care. All right. That was awesome. Yeah, that was really fun. All right, everybody. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter.
like, subscribe, hit the bell. <laughs> and thank you so much for watching and see you next time.